Hallelujah. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity that you have given us to gather together as your people to celebrate the amazing work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have spread before us this day your table wherein we remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed to wash away our sins once and for all by the only sacrifice that could accomplish this great feat, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we open up your scriptures this morning to behold the depth, the beauty, the implications, the power, the consistency, and the plan from before time began executed perfectly in history, I pray that our eyes would be opened to its beauty and to its depth. And our faith would be strengthened to walk in a manner worthy of this great call. And that you would call forth sinners who are as yet unrepentant unto salvation. Repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would bind us now, Lord, by your Spirit's power to the truth of these words. That they may be unto us an anchor for our soul, a foundation underneath our feet, and a strong refuge and tower. That whenever the enemy would seek to assail us, we would find in you a sufficient refuge. And in fact, that we would take ground as the kingdom of God, advancing it with the force of the gospel, that your kingdom and your glory might go forth to to this world, even as the waters cover the sea. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God. What a great opportunity we have. What a glorious gift and privilege it is to have the Scriptures received by the faithful and to be in our hands this day. Let us consider them this morning by turning to Hebrews eleven, thirty-two through 40. Hebrews eleven, thirty-two through 40. While you're finding that place in your Bible, let me give you a title of this morning's message. It's simply as this, World Not Worthy. And these words come from verse 38. When speaking of the saints of old, the author of Hebrews says of them that the world was not worthy. In other words, the strength of character, the faith, and the fundamental change that God had worked in the individuals that confessed faith in the Messiah was such that they now were so different, so manifestly transformed, that this world, in this world, they were strangers and they were just passing through. This world now was not their home, but they were looking forward to, as Abraham was, a city whose builder and foundations was the, uh, of whom the builder and foundations uh, were the Lord Himself. He was responsible for establishing them. And so the world was not worthy of these who had this great faith. This morning, as we consider the close of Hebrews 11, this great chapter come to be called by some the Hall of Faith, will note that its summary and conclusion reminds us of the intent from the beginning, that the faith of the church who heard these words would be stirred as they behold the faith of those who have gone before. Thus the aim of this morning's message is that we may press on with great faith even today, that we, the saints now, may press on with great faith Remembering our forefathers' example and the advent of Jesus Christ our Lord. As we remember our forefathers in the faith who've gone before and Jesus Christ come in time, may we press forth with greater faith still. Stand with me if you would, and if you are able, with your Bible open to Hebrews.
32 through 40. And let us, out of reverence and fear, behold the holy, infallible word of the Lord. Hebrews eleven thirty-two. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women back their dead by resurrection. Verse 35 goes on. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Verse 29. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. At the close of Hebrews 11, as we have had several messages in this text, let us remember the opening. So turn with me to Hebrews 11.1. 1. The author introduces this section by saying, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. He goes on to describe more the character of this faith and then lists a long line of examples beginning with Abel, moving to Enoch, then Noah, Abraham, and so on. And with each of these examples, he cites an individual in the past who had faith that was commended to them as righteousness. And by, by it, by this faith, the people of old received this commendation. And this faith, as he describes it, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. A summary definition of faith we've been working through with for this chapter is Faith is believing in and acting on the power and promises of God. Faith is believing in and acting on the power and promises of God. When we see those who have believed and have acted according to the promises and power of God through the course of covenant history, it gives us a better knowledge of the essence of faith. It also builds our faith when we recognize that we are greater heirs in some sense today than those who have gone before. We have more fuel for faith in our disposal now than any saint who has preceded us has ever enjoyed. And we'll explore those thoughts today. As the author is making these points, he gets to the end of his chapter in this long list, and he's compounding these examples, and with a flourish of persuasive speech, the author of Hebrews closes this section on faith of the former saints with a rhetorical question, a cumulative case, and an argument from lesser to greater. The rhetorical question comes in the first verse of our text today, what more shall I say? In other words, haven't I said enough? 
Haven't all these examples convinced you? And he goes on to say, if I were continue, continue to list them all, time would fail me. The power of God evident in the faith of His saints is a track record, a testimony that exceeds His ability to even speak about in toto exhaustively in this passage. Suffice it to say, with this rhetorical question, He knows He has given enough evidence that the church should be greatly encouraged. And so this is His rhetorical question. Secondly, as we have seen, He's building this cumulative case through history of the saints who have gone before and their faith. And then he closes a section with an argument from lesser to greater. He says, all these, verse 39, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. So what they enjoyed in part, we now enjoy in some sense in full, although there is yet more on the horizon for us as saints. So we have a greater uh, we have a greater promise, he says, those great examples who went before us. And so his case is quite convincing indeed. Hebrews 11 opens the blinds on the windows, overlooking the legacy of promise through redemptive history. I imagine myself in a cabin and all the shutters are closed. And I have been led there and with a blindfold on. You can put yourself in those shoes and you don't know where you are. And you wake up and you think, boy, this is a confined space. There's not too many amenities around me. I don't even know if there's running water in this out-of-the-way you know, cabin where I'm roughing it here. You pull off your blindfold and you see your immediate surroundings. But then you take one more step. You go over to the window and you lift the blinds. And before you is this panoramic vista overlooking the most beautiful mountain scene with lakes and crags rising up and cliffs and snow-capped peaks and trees glorifying the Lord as they spread their branches in worship to His creative power. And you see this before you. And this is kind of like the perspective that Hebrews 11 gives us. It opens the blinds on the windows so that through the eyes of faith we can see the panoramic scope of the legacy of promise through redemptive history, how God has shown Himself powerful through the faith and the promises that He has fulfilled for Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, uh, Isaac, Jacob. He goes through even more, compounding these examples, Moses, those who crossed the Red Sea, those who saw Jericho fall, Rahab who gave her heart to Christ, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, all the prophets, the list goes on and on. The blinds of the redemptive historical perspective have been, listed, have been lifted and we see this panoramic of God's power through all history. We keep the blinds closed, brothers and sisters, at our own peril. What do we risk if the blinds of this perspective are closed? We don't consider the saints of old. We don't consider seriously God's power in history. We get so short-sighted in the problems of the now. What do we risk? Well, we risk despair, discouragement, and even apostasy. And that was what this church was facing if they didn't have a perspective change by the Word of God affecting their soul. As finite creatures, we, like the church that heard, first heard this message of the Hebrews, we as finite creatures are beleaguered 
in our, uh, with our own self-interest, we get bogged down by caring so much about our immediate circumstances. We easily lament our condition and the challenges that face us on a day-to-day, the stress of our you know, hour-by-hour schedule. This is our condition. We languish in our faith by assessing our trials and fears through the narrow and insufficient lens of our own experience. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I've never faced it before. What is that? That is processing your challenge with fear based on your experience. This leads to the blinds of faith closing on the doors of God's power and retreating introspectively into our own self-interest. Hebrews exhorts us to broaden our perspective, looking back upon the faithfulness of God and the faith of the saints who precede us, remembering that for all of the Old Testament examples, their testimony of belief and action according to the power and promises of God was demonstrated even before Messiah, Jesus Christ, had come. Our author closes his case, now a note on structure. He closes his case in these passages by a couple of literary devices that indicate a kind of subtle difference, a category distinction. This is more apparent in the original language. In verse 32, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah are listed uninterrupted, but then in the Greek, it's translated by the word of. He says, of David and Samuel and the prophets. So may I suggest to you there's two categories of saints that he refers to. These first four are in category one, and then in the original language, it it transliterates David also and Samuel and the prophets, as if to introduce another category of examples. Um, he goes on to introduce, or in, in so doing, he introduces an additional historical era. You'll note that Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah are all among the judges, and that with Samuel and David, it marks a transition into the king. So we can see that each era of redemptive history, God has demonstrated His power and has raised up His people of faith. And then we also see a difference in the kind of individuals, and we'll explore that a little more later. He also goes on to say, in kind of a subtle uh, change here, there's a a device, if you will, that separates two categories of their exploits. Um, You heard the first half. They were the the most memorable in a way. These were the actions that caused uh, great exploits and triumphant uh, power to be shown through God's servants. They conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. This sounds really awesome like superhero type stuff. But then there's a shift signaled by the word some in verse 35. After the acknowledgement that women received their dead back to resurrection, it says some were tortured, refusing to accept release. And again, if we look in the original Greek, what's translated by the word some is, is more word for word translation is of them, others moreover. So a women received their dead back by resurrection of them, others moreover. So among those who had faith, there were others in entirely different category. And these manifested their great faith through torture, not accepting release, sufferings, mockery, floggings, chains, imprisonment, and so on. And so we see two categories of exploits as well. Now this morning, as we consider the implications behind these distinctions, 
it will greatly encourage our faith. Our faith as a reader of Hebrews can greatly be encouraged as we consider the way that these examples are recorded for our benefit. So let's attempt to do that this morning. Here's a heading for just a couple points today. A highlight history of the faithful concludes emphasizing the following. So think of a highlight history, a history of the faithful where certain individuals are highlighted. And that's the way Hebrews 11 is structured. But this history concludes by emphasizing three major things. Two categories of forefathers, two categories of exploits, both of which we briefly mentioned, and finally, two categories on the timeline of redemption. So that will be the basic structure of our message. How the author emphasizes, first of all, two categories of forefathers. When we see, I've been using the word forefathers, and this is not by accident. In verse 32, again in our text, what more shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms. It later uses this term in our translation, some uh, were tortured and so on. So earlier in the passage, there is a word that is used to refer generally to these saints of old. Notice in Hebrews 11:2, For by it the people of old received their commendation. This after the author has said, By faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of, not, of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. If we go again to the original language, there's just a few uh, Hebrews, it's it, there's a lot of wealth to draw from this because it's a very sophisticated book that uses Greek to the author's advantage in very sophisticated ways to illustrate glorious truths. Well, if we go back to the language, you can do this yourself through something like an interlinear help. You can find these online. But the term that is used or that is translated, the people of old, actually comes from the Greek word presbuteros. That might sound similar, similar to, to you, or, or you, that may sound similar to the word presbytery. And that's because the word is derived from a similar root. Presbyteros or presbytery is a word that refers to a qualified eldership. This is a word from which we get the idea of Presbyterianism, actually the form of government that recognizes mature men of seasoned judgment who are to serve as elders in the Christian assembly. The term elder is also synonymous with presbyteros. The idea of those among us who have special ability to lead and to serve in particular ways because they are specifically called and equipped to do so. They are the elders, the seasoned ones, the ones who have experience and demonstrate a faith, if you will. Another term you could use is ancients or forefathers. So these categories of forefathers are categories of those who are elders among us. Elders in the sense that they carried forth the legacy of old. There is a generational lineage of faithfulness in the kingdom of God. And a perspective that takes into account the food that we need for faith recognizes the eldership of Noah of Abraham, of David, of the prophets, of Samson, of Jephthah, of Barak, and so on. And this is what the author is getting at. Remember your elders. 
respect your elders. Look back to the qualified ones who went before, who by their faithful example demonstrated what it means, what it looks like to walk by faith and not by sight. So this first category of forefathers, I call the unlikely ones. Why? Because, well, these aren't really the people that if you were writing a biography today, you would probably choose as your first choice. These are the first four names listed in verse 32. Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. If you recall in your biblical history, each one of them had problems. Yes, God used them, but also they were unlikely choices for the task at hand. Gideon, you recall, was a fearful individual who was threshing grain in a wine press, hiding because the enemy armies were encroaching on the land stealing whatever the people could produce. As soon as the crop was harvested, the enemy armies, the hordes would come in and they would steal away the grain. Gideon was scared of this and he, instead of leading, you know, getting his neighbors together and saying, uh, this should not be the case, let us pray that God would equip us with the ability to defend the promised land. Instead, he was just doing his best to survive and perhaps feed his family hiding in a hole. Well, God met this man with a distinct call. And in spite of his cowardice, God raised him up to lead an army against the Midianites. And you recall the story. With just 300, they faced thousands strong in the middle of the night and routed them with curious weapons like torches and pitchers. Gideon later in his life did not continue to faithfully serve the Lord all his days. But he was given to different things that led him astray. And the sin of Gideon is certainly on his sleeve as the Bible records it. Barak is a similar story. He was also a coward, if you will. He lived in a time where Deborah, the prophetess, had to encourage him and exhort him to go forward. He had to be kicked in the rear by a woman to actually embrace with confidence, the call that God had on his life. A sort of shameful in that culture, indeed, for Barak to be so fearful of the enemies that he had to be whipped into shape by a lady who understood that the word of the Lord was the strongest defense against any enemy. It doesn't matter how powerful they were. And so Barak went forward, and God did recognize his obedience, and the exploits of Barak are recorded for us. Samson, he needs little explanation either. You recall his foibles and faults. Seemed like every time he turned around, he was attracted to a wayward woman from a pagan people, got him into all sorts of trouble. Until the end, he was imprisoned behind enemy lines in the Philistine camp, and his last act, greater than all, his, all of his fits and starts in his life, proved to be the most faithful of all when he destroyed Philistines by pushing down their temple giving his life for this cause, but taking God's enemies with him. Let's turn to one example to look at that we may be less familiar with, and this is the story of Jephthah. He was also, I submit, an unlikely forefather. Let's turn to Judges. In your scriptures reaching back, we see the account of this judge, this man who was called forth to represent God's people, in Judges chapter 11, we pick up on his story in verse 29. 
Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Again, Jephthah was a judge called by the Lord to intervene on, on behalf of the people, to defend them against their enemies, and to rightly adjudicate, to rightly rule according to the Word of God in their midst. It says, The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah to Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And the Ammonites were this enemy people that he was leading an army against. Listen to this, verse 30, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Verse 32, So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Eror, to the neighborhood of Mineth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and listen to this tragic detail, verse 34. Behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And so now we see this tragic story and record of Jephthah. He's an unlikely forefather in the faith inasmuch as he made a hasty vow. He hastily vowed, I will sacrifice whatever comes from the door of my house if you answer our prayer, O Lord, and defeat our enemies for us. After the enemies are defeated, he returns to his home and his daughter comes forth. She begs for a couple of months to retreat before what happens or what must happen takes place. The end of these two months, she returned to her father, verse 39, who did with her according to his, the vow that he made. She had never known a man and it became a custom in Israel, note verse 40, that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. So this is the legacy of Jephthah, an unlikely forefather. Jephthah did evidence faith in the Lord, but he also evidenced a hasty vow and great sin. And even in the time when he was ruling, the people, they created a little ceremony to remember what happened. But it wasn't a celebration of Jephthah's great might and his bravery and boldness in defeating the enemies. But instead, the women of Israel would go and they would weep in the wilderness because this man, among his great exploits, was this great horrific incident where he hastily vowed that he would sacrifice whatever came out of his house. And so, his daughter was the victim of that decision. Now, here's the question. In the case of these four men, why does the author of Hebrews highlight them in this unlikely category as examples of faith? Well, I wrote this bit of commentary to help us understand. Taking one example, as we have done with Jephthah, we see his sordid legacy. Note how his legacy is initially remembered. The women of Israel lament year after year his daughter, the victim of his hasty vow. Why these unlikely candidates? This list seems to intentionally signal, single out examples whose record of faith was at times inconsistent. 
to emphasize the sovereignty of God and encourage a fledgling church. To emphasize the sovereignty of God, that it is Him who ultimately gives us faith in spite of ourselves. And to, emphasize, and to encourage a fledgling church who at times exhibited faithlessness like Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, and Samson. The author is pleased to cite these examples. We may be prone, if we were to write a book, to cite the most outstanding, the most virtuous, or classic examples of faithfulness. These are the types of heroes books are written about. These are the types of heroes people name their children after. The author of Hebrews has, a de has deeper purposes in his record than the veneration of saints, however. He is writing to encourage the church. In spite of their own susceptibility to the doubtful flesh, they may still prove instruments in God's hand if they finally submit to His will and instruction like Jephthah in spite of his hasty vow, like Gideon and Barak in spite of their cowardice, and like Samson in spite of his impetuous self-indulgence. So this is a great encouragement to us, is it not? Because I don't know about you, but I certainly would not fit in the hero's legacy of a Noah or an Abraham or a Moses in this list of individuals, I find more affinity with a Gideon, a Barak, a Samson, and Jephthah. Because the track record of my consistency of faith through the record of my life has big gaps. Yet it is encouraging to see that in spite of ourselves, just like this record in history, God nevertheless, through unlikely forefathers, demonstrates great faith through individuals who are in and of themselves fickle, frail, indeed, sinners. Praise the Lord. There's a second category of forefathers. Perhaps we could call these the celebrated forefathers. If the first were the unlikelies, now we have the celebrated. And in verse 32, again, we see this transition by the word of. Barak. First we have Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. And then we have of David and Samuel and the prophets. David, Samuel, and the prophets. These are pivotal figures not without their own faults, of course. We recall faults in both of their lives. Yet huge blocks of Scripture are devoted to their influence. And so we see one example of this in 1 Samuel 7. Let's turn there to see what we can learn from the testimony, just in brief, a brief example, example of the testimony of Samuel in this case. Samuel was a unique figure. He was a sort of polymathic individual. That means he was an expert at a lot of things. That's just a fun word to say, polymathic. Uh, Samuel, it says in First uh, Samuel 7, verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. And so we see in the track record of Samuel's faith that he was something of a peacemaker. 
he actually prayed and instructed the people and led them in the defeat of their enemies and restored territories that had been lost to them. But he did more still. In verse 15, we see Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he returned, uh, would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Samuel was a judge. He was a prophet. And he was a leader of armies. He was an instructor of the people in all these ways. In this sense, we could see in Samuel, one of the celebrated forefathers, huge blocks of Scripture devoted to his legacy. However, in the next chapter, chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, we see even here that the people rejected the testimony of faith in the example of Samuel and how discouraging it must have been for him to now go out and find a king knowing that it was not God's best plan for the leadership of these people, but they wanted to be led like the pagan nations around them. Nevertheless, Samuel is a good example uh, for us to look at, a figure, a prophet, a judge, a military victor, illustrating great exploits, even though the next chapter in his life would be met with some discouragement. Samuel was one who could fall into this list of great things that were accomplished. When the uh, record goes on to say in Hebrews 11 that these were those who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, and obtained promises, certainly Samuel uh, falls strongly into the category of the first two. We just read of kingdoms that were conquered, but also he enforced justice. That is, he took the word of God and applied it to the tough cases. Now, if you are serving in the Supreme Court of our land, one thing that would become apparent to you is that there would be no easy case that finally would go through the appeals process, at least normally speaking, until it got to you. In the case of the system of jurisprudence or law within a nation, there is that highest place of appeal where the pressure is on to rule rightly where the challenge is the greatest. Well, the faith that Samuel had in the Word of God to be a sufficient arbiter for every moral dilemma equipped him to be not just a prophet, but also a judge, to bring mediation, resolution of court cases, disagreements, conflicts, and discrepancies between parties, even in the system of law and judgment in his day. And so as we look back, we see in these two categories of forefathers, the unlikely ones and the celebrated ones. And in both cases, we see examples of the Lord's mighty power to take weak and unlikely individuals and to use them in great ways and also to use them in ways that touch every area of life. The celebrated forefathers of old had a faith that extended beyond just some narrow pigeonholed idea of what the Word of God was useful for. They demonstrated in their life and ministry such as Samuel that the Word of God is a comprehensive instrument of precise worldview, heart, life, and social transformation of an entire people and society. And so by these examples, we see that the history of faithfulness is highlighted by showing us, by example, its power when it is believed and when it is acted upon. Faith is, after all, believing in and acting on 
the power and promises of God. Second highlight in this history, in this concluding argument by the author, he emphasizes not just two categories of forefathers, but also two categories of exploits. And this is a little more easy to see. The difference is quite dramatic. Back to verse 23. Speaking of these examples who went before, the author says, "...who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection." By my count, that is 10 triumphal exploits. All of us, I think, would sign up to be a part of those events taking place. Oh yeah, wouldn't it be amazing to see the enemies of God routed at the tip of my sword when I led a charging victorious army into battle, slain to a man all of the enemies of our nation, and being the arm of the Lord's justice and bringing peace and subduing his enemies in one fell swoop. Wow. Movies are made of those kind of exploits in history. Sometimes the facts are massaged just a little bit to give you the sense of conquering power and glory on the battlefield. That's a triumphal exploit. What about quenching the power of fire? Well, as if they had superhero powers, the three uh, friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come to mind. They make their stand in front of this entire kingdom that rules the known world as far as they are concerned. And these individuals, just a handful of young people from a conquered nation, Israel, standing there in this pagan nation, surrounded by testimonies to its authority with the buildings and the statue and the pomp, the circumstance, the kingdom, the rulers, the armies. They say, I'm sorry, O king. Even if we must die, we will not worship and serve this statue that, we, that you have set up. We will worship and serve the one true God only. And you remember the story? They were thrown into the fire so hot that the guards, as they approached the opening of the furnace, were struck dead by the heat radiating from this place. Yet one joined them in the fire, and those flames did not touch so much as singed the hairs on their body, and they came through triumphantly, proving that when God protects His people, fire cannot destroy them. What a triumphal exploit indeed. Sign me up for that. That's awesome. I wish I had that kind of power, we might say. They became mighty in war. They put armies to flight, and women received their dead back by resurrection. Two of the prophets illustrated this kind of power, Elijah and Elijah, the widow at Zarephath. In 1 Kings 17, 19 through 24, she received her dead son back to life. Not to be outdone, his mentee, Elisha, the disciple, the next prophet, again, through, his, through the power of God manifest in his ministry, the Shulamite, or the Shunammite woman received her dead back to life in 2 Kings 4, 18 through 37. Wow, sign me up for that. Again, we might say these exploits of triumphant power. As we look at the testimony of David, he is one who escaped the sword. He is the one who routed his enemies. As we look at the history and influence of his kingdom, he subdued Syria, Moab, Ammon, Amalek, Edom, the Philistines. 
the greatest conquering king Israel had ever known. He certainly is in this category of faith next to Samuel. David and Samuel and the prophets. The prophets saw the dead raised. David saw multiple nations subdued. Samuel saw nations thwarted and his uh, people organized and the word of God coming true from his lips to be manifest in real time. These are the triumphant exploits that we look back on and see are highlighted as examples of the power of God among the faithful. But that, of course, is not the only category. There are two categories of exploits. The second is not triumphs, it's sufferings. And as we look closely, we see that perhaps in some sense, greater faith still is manifest in those who endure the following and do not turn away from the Lord, who do not lose their confidence in their God. I don't know about you, but if I was a prophet and I went and prayed for a kid and he was raised from the dead and someone, and a, and someone you know, represented from a pagan tribe said, oh, Zeus is the one true God, haven't you heard? Your God is dumb. And say, you know, scoreboard, look at this kid. He was dead a few minutes ago. Now he's raised to life. Think of Elijah on Mount Carmel. All the prophets of Baal, 450 strong. I'm sure they had an oppressive display as their sacrifice was prepared for their God to answer by fire. But no amount of hours and hours after sheer exhaustion of crying out in their pagan rituals of cutting and chanting could accomplish a single movement in the elements of nature. One humble man in ragged clothing, like is described here, who dwelt in deserts, mountains, dens, and caves, and was otherwise destitute and afflicted, and in, you know, likely wearing skins of sheep and goats, steps up to the plate, and he prepares the sacrifice on this humble altar with just 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and his God answers with fire. The 450 prophets of Baal are slaughtered, and rightly so, immediately after the event. Well, what if someone came up to Elijah in that moment and said, your God doesn't exist. You know, this whole world came into being uh, of its own accord. I believe in evolution, that first there was nothing and then it exploded. It's the only thing that makes any scientific sense. Would Elijah believe that person? Not for an instant. Because he had just seen the power of God to call fire from heaven and consume not only the sacrifice, but the very water in the trench. A mighty miracle. But again I say this to illustrate. What kind of faith did it take for Elijah to endure the despair when Jezebel wasn't conquered and she now raised up an army to chase him into the wilderness? What kind of faith did it take for Elijah when he was wandering in the wilderness, to realize that God had not abandoned him. Because God had created two, God had ordained two categories of exploits for him to participate in. Yes, the triumphant, but also the suffering. Of these, it says, they were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they may rise again to a better life. It says, verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. The world was not worthy of these 
who demonstrated such great faith that even in the harshest and most cruel and torturous circumstances, deprivation, and affliction, they stood on the firm foundation of faith in the one true God. Think of Joseph, for example. Joseph had promises. They were given to him. He had dreams where God spoke to him of the importance and the significance of his life. Favored among his brothers, he wore proof of that in his garments. The coat of privilege that his father gave him that signaled him out as a chosen son. But one day the fortunes of Joseph are upended. And he can relate to this list when he is thrown into a pit. He's tortured to some degree. He is put in chains. He's imprisoned, as it were. He's hauled away in slavery and later incarceration in Egypt where there are those surrounding him who would sooner stone him, kill him, than let him live. But by God's grace, he endured these trials. How did he do so? He did so recognizing that the promise of God that he saw in the dreams and the token of God's favor he had received from his father, which represented something far more significant, was a more powerful, powerful force still than the imprisonment of Potiphar than the line of Potiphar's wife, than the betrayal of his brothers, than slavery in a foreign land. And as the story of Joseph unfolds, we see his great faith in the end, when at once his brothers, finally coming around to their senses, realizing that they had conscripted their brother to years and years of this kind of suffering exploits, and are are just ashamed and fearful for their own lives. And what does Joseph tell them? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. This is the kind of faith that the author of Hebrews is encouraging the saints of his time and is encouraging us even today with. We may find ourselves relating to the exploits of affliction more than the exploits of triumph. There are exploits of triumph in your life. You are saved, are you not, if you are in Christ with me today? If you confess Christ as your Savior and Lord, the triumphal exploit of God's work in your life has rescued you from hell, sin, death, the clutches of Satan. Triumphal exploit indeed. But you may be going through a difficult time right now where you feel destitute, even if it's just emotionally afflicted, mistreated. You feel like you're wandering around in a desert and this world really isn't a suitable place for you and no matter where you go, no matter what you bump into by way of circumstances, it doesn't seem to satisfy. It doesn't seem to be sufficient. It doesn't seem to live up to your expectations. And you begin to grow weary in your faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I beg you, lift the blinds on the windows that you may see the perspective, the panoramic view of God's work through history. Draw faith from his intervention with Elijah on Mount Carmel. Draw faith from his intervention wherein he saved eight people through the waters of judgment in an ark that took 120 some years to build where one man stood in faith against a generation, against a world who hated the Yahweh, the one true God. Draw faith from Rahab, that one unlikely prostitute who turned her life around and confessed faith and treated this and treated the uh, spies as if she were already conquered, knowing that their God ruled heaven and earth and Jericho, and it would soon fall by the strength of his hand. Draw faith from these examples. And as you do, 
and this perspective rushes into your soul, you realize that the mundane call of waking up for work tomorrow, the job you really don't relish, is very small indeed. And God can give you faith to endure. Finally this morning, there are two categories on the timeline of redemption. Let me read two verses and let me give you a picture to hopefully help us understand this argument from lesser to greater that the author closes this section with. He says of these saints, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, and dens and caves of the earth. These last two verses, notice, and all these, verse 39, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I want you to envision in your mind's eye a timeline, a linear chart of events. And think of on one side of the timeline, uh, this word, fulfilled. So promises that are fulfilled. And then on the other side of the timeline, yet promised. So depending on where you are in redemptive history, whether you're all the way back here and you're able, you have this amount, amount you know, a relatively small amount of God's promises fulfilled, and you have all of this in front of you of God's promises uh, uh, of what is yet promised, okay? So there's Abel. Now we move to Enoch, a little farther on the timeline. He has experienced more fulfilled promises, even though there is a lot yet to be or, uh, fulfilled in front of him. And then we move uh, through the names, Noah, then Abraham. Abraham received covenant promises from the Lord. Sarah received the power <coughs> to conceive a son, even in her old age. The promises are accruing. These are not just their promises, they are ours as well. We have Abraham and his legacy, Isaac and Jacob. We have moving on to Joseph. We have Moses. We have from Moses the, uh, the conquering uh, Israelites in the promised land, we have Rahab, we have Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. Okay? So we are moving across this timeline. Now something, as the promises are accruing, something extremely significant that changes all history by which we mark our godly calendars after happens in time. You know what it is. The Messiah is born. And this fixed point on the timeline changes history forever. And now we can truly say anyone who is born after that point in the timeline has greater promises still and infinitely more so than was ever experienced, although they saw forward in faith in manifest fulfillment in their lifetime. And these, though commended through their faith, everyone who preceded Christ did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. And what was the something better? Jesus Christ, come in flesh, interrupting history, providing the sacrifice for our sins, manifesting that the faith of all the saints who went before was not foolishness, but was actually believing in an actual event that would take place in time and has taken place in time. And now that is the mile marker of our own faith. And so where are we? Now 2,000 marks beyond that, and with each passing day, Fulfilled promises of God's faithfulness to us only increase. And what is yet promised to us 
is closer and closer to us and to all the saints. Verse 40, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Being made perfect with all the saints who've gone before is yet future for us. It's yet promised for us. And yes, it requires faith to believe that this wicked world with all its pains and sorrows will one day melt away into a glorious new world, a new heaven and earth of perfect communion with Christ. It does take faith, but notice the argument from lesser to greater. How much more of the track record of God's faithfulness do we have to reference to give us faith that that will happen as assuredly as God spared Noah from the flood? As assuredly as God fulfilled His promise to Abraham in giving him a son. As assuredly as God fulfilled His promise to Joseph to raise him up to be influential in his time. As assuredly as God led the Israelites through the leadership of Moses out of, out of captivity into Canaan land. As assuredly as He has sent His incarnate Son to make sufficient payment for your sin and for mine, we will sooner than later experience that glorious reunion and communion with our Lord and Savior. Brothers and sisters, in closing this morning, God knows our frailty. Yes, often we're more like Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. And we need things that remind us of this perspective. We need things, God has ordained them, that lift the blinds so that we can see the panorama of God's redemptive history and in this meal today, at the communion table, may the blinds of your understanding and of your doubt and faithlessness and difficulties and battling the stresses and sins of life this week be lifted as we remember Christ crucified and His blood shed for us. In Exodus 12, after the first Passover was initiated, God had destroyed the gods of Egypt he had executed his judgments on them, and in so doing, he had declared, I am the Lord. He said, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. He said further, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. And so this feast that was commissioned, the Passover, would remind the parents and then to the children every time they celebrated it of God's work of redemption. Their minds should go back to the blood on the doorposts, that sacrifice, that sacrifice that covered their sins so the angel of death passed over. And so we have a meal today, commissioned forever until the Lord returns and we celebrate it in glory where we remember the blood shed on the doorposts of our own heart when the Lamb of God was slain for the satisfaction of our sin's punishment. And so we have in this meal today opportunity to see and to behold that God's work in history is absolutely certain and secure. And so we have no good reason to doubt the future prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Let us close and transition in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the promises of Scripture that stir our heart in faith this day. We thank you that you have ordained for us, weak and forgetful people, means of grace whereby we can be strengthened. As we look back through the record of your history with your people, 
and see that you moved mountains, armies, heaven and earth, raised the dead back to life to accomplish your will. May we be encouraged in our day-to-day challenge of crucifying the flesh and walking in the Spirit. Also, Lord, today as we partake at your table, as this bread touches our lips, and as this juice, Lord Jesus, travels down into our body system, may you work, Lord, the reality of, our, of the gospel truth of our salvation inside of us, deep within our soul and our mind and our psyche so that the crevices of our being are filled up with the knowledge of the truth that we may stand in any day of adversity. Lord, and thank you for your power to equip, to preserve your people, not just to be defensive against the enemy, but actually take ground and proclaim your name to a world that is desperate and dying and is in such dire need of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.